Arizona, Colorado, Indiana, Michigan, New Jersey, Tennessee, and Virginia. WinBet is now live in all these states, and the excitement of Win Las Vegas has finally landed in online sports betting and casino play. From boosted parlays to live in-game odds on every major sport, WinBet gives you the tools to win. Sign up today for your risk-free $1,000 sports bet. Download the WinBet app now or visit wynnbet.com to start winning. Blue Wire. It's exciting to win money. Back out to Allen. History final. Is there anything you don't gamble on? Uh, not really. Gambling gods, fickle bunch. Oh yeah, so easily offended. Gambling's not your problem. You're just an idiot. And we welcome you into full slate of Blue Wire Gambling Podcast. My name is Greg Frank. You can find me on Gambling Twitter at Undercover Greg. For the rest of my hot takes on whatever is on my mind at G underscore Frank six, uh, shoot the podcast to follow at full underscore slate underscore pod and give our buddy Alex a follow as well. He's our jack of all trades with full slate at Alex underscore up seven as it is the second weekend of the big dance as March Madness resumes on Thursday night in Sin City and the city that never sleeps as New York and Las Vegas are the sites for the East and West regionals, respectively. And we're going to go through all eight of these regional semifinal games as uh, it is certainly going to be an enjoyable second weekend with a lot of matchups that are appetizing. And it's funny, sometimes through all of this, you wonder, and, and I think we, we'll get to one game where you look up and, and you might already guess which game I'm referring to where you just say, eh, you know. I don't know that that's going to be all that fun. And sometimes you can have that in the NCAA tournament, right, where there's a game in the second weekend after the chaos of the first weekend, and you say, oh, well, last weekend was fun, but now we got to watch that? <laughs> um, and there is one game that I'm referring to in that regard, uh, but that's not until Friday. So let's get to the Thursday games. We'll run through every point spread and total and – Take it from there as we'll begin in New York City with the Michigan State Spartans laying one in the hook, a total of 137.5 against the Kansas State Wildcats. And I'll be honest, I don't think I'm going to bet this game. Uh, I do, as a fan of college basketball, love Tom Izzo and would love to see him make another Final Four, particularly given, obviously, the tragedy this year at Michigan State um, with the shooting. But... I don't like how public Michigan State feels in this spot, just from a gambling sense. I will say, while I am one of those, like, nobody cares about your bracket people, and, you know, people like to puff their chest out about their bracket and not watch college basketball November through February, I did have Michigan State over Florida Atlantic in this regional final. So, while I had Arizona in the national championship game, I might, might have gotten that right in the East. So, I'm going to root for Michigan State, but... Again, I don't like how public Michigan State feels as the lower seed. Um, favored, obviously, in the game. But, I don't know. The more you watch Kansas State, particularly last weekend against Kentucky, they probably have the best two players in this game in Marquise Noel and Keontae Johnson. And in a sport like basketball, 
where one player can take over at any time. Kansas State has two players that are probably a little bit better than anybody else Michigan State has. It's not to slight A.J. Hogard. It's not to slight Tyson Walker. I love Tyson. I, you know, Joey Hauser can maybe get hot from three for, K- for Michigan State, excuse me, but I look at Kansas State and I, I, I think there's kind of an, an element of, you know, giant killer might be the wrong word because this season Kansas State had better seasons than Kentucky and Michigan State, but I think Kansas State probably enjoys the fact that, you know, they were an underdog, by the way, in that game against Kentucky, and here they are as an underdog again against Michigan State, and Kansas State uh, is a program that has really revitalized itself this year under first-year coach Jerome Tang, and I don't expect, you know, Tyler Kolick, the guard for Marquette, kind of whittled up down the stretch against Michigan State, and I just don't expect Keontae Johnson and Marquise Noel to do similar things. This is a team that obviously played in the Big 12, Kansas State. Had to go to Waco and play Baylor, who's a recent national champion. The last two national champions out of the Big 12, of course, because Kansas won the national championship last year. So, they've been through it. Have the Wildcats of Kansas State. And, again, I think they have the best two players in this game, and they're an underdog. Now, that might be a little too good to be true. But at the same time, I think this time of year... We see Michigan State the second weekend. We're not surprised. And therefore, Kansas, or excuse me, Michigan State becomes a public side. Kind of what this feels like to an extent here. So as much as I want Michigan State to win the game, from a gambling standpoint, I feel like the only side you can look to is Kansas State. Again, because the Wildcats are dog and have the best two players in the game. So it's Kansas State or pass for me in this first game at Madison Square Garden. Let's go to the first game in Sin City where the Connecticut Huskies are a four-point favorite against the Arkansas Razorbacks, total of 140. And I will bet this game, and I will lay the short number with the Connecticut Huskies. I want to remind you about Arkansas. There is a reason that the Razorbacks are an eight seed in this tournament. And I think the world of Eric Musselman. Three NCAA tournaments at Arkansas because he was hired in 2019. And, of course, there was no tournament in 2020. 21, 22, 23. All three years there's been a tournament that he's been in Arkansas. He's been in the second weekend. Wildly impressive. And, of course, he got to a Sweet 16 in Nevada. But Nick Smith Jr. better get going or Arkansas is in a world of trouble. Nick Smith Jr. is a pro prospect, going to be a lottery pick in this summer's NBA draft. Two for 14 shooting in two games for Arkansas over the weekend. 0 for 4 from 3, a total of just six points in the two games against Illinois and Kansas. That's not going to fly against a Connecticut team that looked like it could win the national championship last weekend. And let's not scoff at Iona and St. And, uh, Mary's. I know it's a pair of mid-majors that Connecticut beat. But when Patino was at Iona, they were in the tournament twice and won the regular season title of the year that they didn't win their conference tournament. So Iona is one of the better mid-majors historically, but certainly recently as well. And... You can say the same exact thing for St. Mary's. And I I will add that St. Mary's has one of the best guards in the country in Aiden Mahaney, 
who Connecticut held to four for 13 shooting in the second round. So I think there's a level of physicality, right? We're talking about Dan Hurley here. Okay, you see how animated he gets on the sideline and how juiced up he is? Dan Hurley teams are always going to be physical. Dan Hurley teams are always going to want to punch you in the mouth. And I think perimeter defenders like Andre Jackson and Jordan Hawkins can do just that for Connecticut here. And they can make the game pretty physical. And again, you're talking about Nick Smith Jr. already not playing that well for Arkansas. And, you know, Debo Davis took the game over against Kansas. Again, if Mahaney can't take a game over for St. Mary's, I'm not sure that Debo Davis can do that for Arkansas again the way he did against Kansas. So, Arkansas has got a lot of athletes. Ricky Council the fourth is a talented player, but I just think Connecticut was more impressive the first weekend, and Connecticut is more than four points better on a neutral court. Because here's the thing about Arkansas. Arkansas was a very buzzworthy team going into the season. Musselman had several McDonald's All-Americans committed, Nick Smith Jr. being one of them. And they're an eight seed in this tournament. So what does that tell you? That would indicate to me that they're a team that, at its best, can play with the best teams in the country, like we saw last weekend beating Kansas. But at their worst, they can lose to teams, Arkansas can, that is, that are not NCAA tournament teams. And the kind of fluctuation that you'll get from Arkansas and you know like you look back at their schedule lost by 13 in conference play on the road to Vanderbilt like Vanderbilt ended up being a nice little story this year getting to the NIT under Jerry Stackhouse but they had a lot of get lost by 13 on the road to Auburn they had a lot of games like that too got clobbered on the road against Tennessee and Tennessee still playing so there's no shame in that but you know they lost on the road to Texas A&M to barely survived against lowly South Carolina. This is why they were unranked in the top 25 going into the tournament and ended up being an eight seed. And so I think that it's a team that might throw in a clunker here or there, and all of a sudden, four points doesn't feel like that much that you're giving up to back Connecticut. So I think Connecticut is trending upward. Adama Sanogo may well be the best player left in this tournament. I mean, he's the first player to average 25 points, 10 rebounds, and shoot 70% from the field in his first two games of an NCAA tournament since Blake Griffin in 2009. So, I don't know where the answer is. Everybody likes to talk about guards in March. And as I said, Arkansas has some talented guards who I don't think are going to perform as well on Thursday night against Connecticut. But Adama Sonogo has taken games over and may well take this game over as well. So I'll lay the points and back Connecticut in the first regional semifinal at T-Mobile in Vegas. Let's go back to the world's most famous arena where uh, I, I, like a, I like a side in the FAU-Tennessee game as well as the Florida, excuse me, the Florida Atlantic Owls are catching five in the hook against the Volunteers of Tennessee, total of 129.5. Give me the points, and I will take Florida Atlantic 
as I said, my East Regional Final in my bracket was Tennessee, excuse me, was Michigan State over Florida Atlantic. And I just think it's so interesting how quickly we all gravitate to or away from certain narratives come the tournament, right? And the recency bias can play a role into how we feel about handicaps, and it can shape lines sometimes. And I think sometimes that's to be taken advantage of. Think about coming into this tournament. I was one, and I have been. I think the body of work, or lack thereof, for Chris or Chris Barnes, Rick Barnes, in March, tells you that he is not as good at making adjustments in games, and he can whittle in the big moment in these games and not cut on a dime quickly when it comes to adjusting. And that was what I talked about with Garrett Smith last week about how he's not a very good NCAA tournament coach. I liked Louisiana to cover a double-digit line against Tennessee, and the Raging Cajuns did just that and nearly came back and stole the game. So then we go into the round of 32 game for Tennessee, and they're a dog against Duke. And you know everybody loves Duke, right? Because Duke's playing well coming in. Duke had won the ACC tournament. Duke clobbered Oral Roberts in a 5-12 game. And Duke's favored. Now, I just finished talking about Arkansas with a lot of McDonald's All-Americans and how the Razorbacks were kind of inconsistent but good enough to beat a lot of teams, but there's a reason they were an eight seed. Doesn't that not sound a lot like Duke? Where on any given night, Duke could beat you, but they could also lose to some teams that didn't that had no place in the NCAA tournament and weren't NCAA tournament teams. So the fact that Tennessee was able to kind of play in the mud and out-tough Duke and win a real physical game against the Blue Devils, that should not come as a surprise. Talk about Rick Barnes maybe not adjusting well. Well, I don't think there really were a lot of adjustments to be made because Tennessee kept the game low scoring. They had a six-point lead at half, and they built to it, and they won the game by 13 against Duke. So, now, I'm sure a lot of people are out there thinking, oh, Tennessee's legit. Look at how much they beat Duke by. 13 points as a dog, right? Everybody loved Duke in that game. And I'm here to draw the line in the sand. Because Tennessee is a two-point dog against Duke, and now they're a five-and-a-half-point favorite against Florida Atlantic. Is Florida Atlantic seven-and-a-half points worse than Duke? I don't think so. Florida Atlantic is good. Florida Atlantic has now won 33 games this year. I don't care what league you play in. If you win 33 out of 36, which is their overall record now after those two wins last week, the Owls of FAU are 33-3, and you're doing something right. And we're hearing Dusty May's name come up for some big jobs. Penn State just opened. He might be a fit there. But regardless, FAU is very live in this game. Because, again, I just think there's line value. With the Owls, I think that Duke maybe got hot, ended up being a five seed. FAU is never going to be that high on the seed line chart, but if you could have split the difference, 
and figure FAU and Duke were both around seven seeds and then pit them both up against Tennessee, you're not going to have one be a two-point favorite and the other be a five-and-a-half-point underdog. And it is still Rick Barnes in March. He didn't have to adjust that much against Duke. And they were playing with the lead the whole time against Louisiana and, by the way, still didn't cover. And while Tennessee is a very good defensive team, the Vols are still limited offensively. And I saw this in an Action Network preview, which I thought underscores why exactly why I think Tennessee, excuse me, why FAU has a chance here. And I think we'll win the game outright. I'll call it right now. FAU wins this game. But the reason why is the SEC did not collectively as a conference shoot the ball that well from the three-point line. In league play, the SEC shot a total of 32% from the three-point line this past season. That's the worst combined three-point percentage in conference games amongst all of the Power Five. Florida Atlantic ranked top 50 in the country in three-point field, three field goal percentage. So, and, you know, you think about a close game down the stretch. Again, Tennessee just kind of paced itself against Duke and slowly but surely build up a double-digit lead. Close game down the stretch. Look at Florida Atlantic's two wins in the tournament. Slowly but surely inched away to an eight-point win against Fairleigh Dickinson, and then obviously one by one in a game against Memphis, in which, yeah, they probably were a little fortuitous down the stretch, but battle-tested. I like that too. Florida Atlantic catching five and a half. The better outside shooting team, a team that's been tested in close games and come through on the first weekend, I like it a lot. Max play for me on Florida Atlantic, plus five and the hook. Final game of the night on Thursday as we go back out to Vegas features the Gonzaga Bulldogs and the UCLA Bruins. Two teams that have played some very iconic NCAA tournament games. You think about the regional semifinal uh, all those years ago with Adam Morrison, you know, the picturesque image of him sitting on the court in tears after Gonzaga blew a big lead against UCLA. Of course, that was when Ben Howland was on the sideline for UCLA and the Bruins ended up going to the national championship game that year and losing to Florida. And then, of course, two years ago, these teams played probably, at least what I have seen, is what I've seen, the greatest national semifinal ever, which concluded with a Jalen Suggs buzzer beater. So, when it comes to this game, I think the side and the total correlate. And we're seeing Gonzaga a short one and a half point dog, total of 145 and a half. I will be on Gonzaga plus one on the hook, and I will be on the over. Because Gonzaga likes to play fast, right? And they don't necessarily have the high level NBA prospect, Chet Holmgren or Jalen Suggs, somebody that you know, has uber athleticism and can get up and down the floor and, you know, stretch the defenses out to the three-point line and also score above the rim. Like, they don't have that kind of player this year. But if you watch them, particularly Sunday night, it was the last game of the round of 32. And for us gamblers, uh, for me, it was, you know, unfortunate. And it was a bad beat. I saw Alex on Twitter kind of, 
chastising people that were playing bad beat police, which can be pretty annoying. The bad beat police were out and about as to if it was a bad beat. It was disgusting. The cover for TCU in the closing seconds. But 84-81 for Gonzaga in the victory. And the Bulldogs scored 51 points in the second half of that game. And so you think about Gonzaga and the way they've played the last few years, again, they want to get you up and down. And Drew Timmy might not be the best athlete, but he can get up and down the floor and also bulldoze right through you in the half court. I mean, he had 28 points and eight boards against TCU. And if Julian Strother and Rasier Bolton can knock down some shots, then those two guards can kind of pace things for Gonzaga in the half court. So, it's no surprise to me that this is a side total correlation. A lot of people saying this as well. And Gonzaga scored in the 80s in its first round with victory over Grand Canyon as well. And so, I think if Gonzaga wins, and I do think Gonzaga wins the game, that the Bulldogs will be able to score again. So, I'm going to play it, play it to go over as well. And... I think it's unfortunate for UCLA that the Bruins are at some point in this tournament, and I think it's going to be Thursday night, excuse me, feel the injury bug. And, of course, they're playing without Jalen Clark, who is one of the best defensive players in college basketball and certainly a calming presence for them defensively on the wing. And... We've now seen injuries to Adem Bona in the front court and David Singleton in the back court, and we don't know where those guys are at health wise. So clearly, while I think Bona and Singleton probably play here, it's a dinged up UCLA team that's going to have to slow it down and win with Jaime Jaquez and Tiger Campbell, calming things down, playing things in the half court, and saying you know, 65-60 will beat you. And I don't think you can do that against Gonzaga right now. I don't think that this Gonzaga team, as a college basketball team, is that far off of recent teams that have been on the one line. Yes, they don't have a number one, you know, a lottery pick, or somebody like Suggs or Holmgren. But... It's a lot of guys that play together and they're peaking at the right time. Again, being able to get up and down the floor and score a lot like they did in their two tournament games. They ran right through St. Mary's in the WCC title game. And I think Gonzaga, you know, some of those kids, the more experienced kids, maybe like maybe they relish the fact that they're not being talked about as much here. Right, UCLA was in the top 10 seemingly all year and is the higher seed in this game. And then should Gonzaga win, you're looking at maybe playing UConn in a regional final. And everybody's talking about UConn right now as metric-wise being one of the best teams in college basketball and good enough to win the national championship. So I think Gonzaga embraces the role of being a little less discussed. I think they already have. And I like Gonzaga and the over in this game in Vegas. Let's go to the... Friday regional games now where we will begin in Kansas City with a very intriguing game between the Houston Cougars and the Miami-Florida 
Hurricanes. Houston is a seven-point favorite at DraftKings, a total of 138. And I am intrigued by the matchup in the backcourt with Isaiah Wong for Miami, who was outstanding against Indiana, and Marcus Sasser for Houston. Now, I lean to Houston here because I do think that the Cougars will do a good job on the glass. I love Jarris Walker. He's a pro prospect. A lot of people think the best prospect NBA-wise to come out of Houston since Hakeem Olajuwon. So obviously high praise there for the freshman big man. But you looked at how much of a menacing presence he was around the rim for Houston in that game against Auburn. I think he had five or six blocks, 10 rebounds. Like, that's a guy that can really disrupt an opponent's offensive flow. And that's the biggest problem, I think, for Miami here. Again, I like Isaiah Wong. And Miami played really well against Indiana. And that's another thing here. I think Miami feels like a little bit of a trendy dog because of the fact that we just saw the Hurricanes run right through Indiana in the round of 32. And now everybody says, ooh, that team that just won by 16 against IU, that team's catching 16, per, excuse me, catching, they won by 16. They're catching seven points here against Houston, a Houston team that was down 10 at half against Auburn. So, I like the backcourt for Miami. In addition to Wong, Jordan Miller had a nice game against IU, but it, it, I have seen the betting splits. Miami does seem like a bit of a trendy dog here. So, I'd be careful there. The only reason I'm staying off Houston, even though I lean with the Cougs, uh, Jamal, Jamal Shedd and Marcus Sasser both have been a little dinged up, and I want to kind of see how they are health-wise. And, you know, maybe get involved in-game or if the Cougs do advance to the regional final against Xavier or Texas and those guys look good, then maybe I'll be more interested in Houston. But no play here would lean with Houston. I, I just think the Cougars are certainly more adept in the front court. And I don't, while there maybe is a slight backcourt advantage for Miami, again, if... Sasser and Shed are a little dinged up. I think that the glass is really going to be an advantage for Houston, and I think that uh, Tremont Mark is a you know a, a kind of an unsung hero for the Houston team as well with his ability to impact the game with his mid range jumper, and he's just very, very much a veteran calming presence for Houston. Uh, the first game in Louisville will see the Alabama Crimson Tide, the number one overall seed, take on San Diego State. I'm probably going to get there with San Diego State here. As the Aztecs are catching seven in the hook, total of 137. We've talked about, mentioned it with Gonzaga. Alabama as well wants to play fast, and they want to shoot a ton of threes. And, you know, very analytically, you know, modern basketball, Alabama, right? They don't really take mid-range jumpers. They're going to play at a super fast tempo, jack up threes, um, and try and get high percentage looks in the paint as well. But here's the thing. Everybody talks about guards in March. And why do we say that? It's because if you 
have guards that can score in the half court, that can slow the game down, you're going to be able to win in this tournament because that's when the going gets a little bit tougher, right? The transition buckets, you can just get on athleticism and hustle and, you know, forcing turnovers and getting out and running. That's great, and there are certain teams like Alabama who are going to want to do that all the time. But San Diego State is comfortable playing a slower game, and they have a guard named Matt Bradley who has been through the ringer and I think is very well equipped to play a slower-paced game. So I think that San Diego State can slow this down enough. Again, not necessarily saying side total correlation here, but I think San Diego State can defend and slow down. Like, they gobbled up Furman. I mean, that game really was never competitive. And I mentioned Bradley. Micah Parrish ends up being their leading scorer, another one of their guards. So, I think there's a level of comfort that San Diego State has in defending. They get back in transition well and allowing the game to come to them. And taking their chances with Bradley and Paris down the stretch. And if that's the case, you know, Lamont Butler, another guard that was in double figures against Furman. If that's the case, I continue to believe that Alabama at some point in this tournament is going to get tight given a lot of the off-the-court stuff with the Brandon Miller stuff. Then you had this week Saban throwing a shot at Nate Oates. And that was a shot as far as I was concerned. I think there might be a coaching advantage here for San Diego State too. Brian Dutcher, remember, was on. He's a Steve Fisher disciple and was on Fisher's staff at Michigan when they recruited the Fab Five and you know went to San Diego State with Steve and now runs the program himself. Uh, he can scheme this thing up to where San Diego State can slow it down enough to give itself a chance. You're giving me seven and a half. I'll take it. Aztecs plus the points. Final two games to get to, and I mentioned now there was one where you just kind of look up and say, oh, through all the chaos, that's what we got, and that's the next game in Louisville as the Princeton Tigers take on the Creighton Blue Jackets, or Creighton Blue Jays, excuse me. I wanted to be on Creighton here because part of me just thinks clock strikes midnight on Cinderella here for Princeton. I do lean that way, but 10 points is a lot. Princeton's not going to have the rebounding advantage that it had against Missouri in this game against Creighton. Creighton is, you know, when you talk about athleticism and an ability to kind of beat you up, I mean, they went right through Baylor. And all due respect to the Missouri Tigers, this is a a step up in class as far as I'm concerned for Princeton. And Missouri was not ready on Saturday night and never punched back. It was the largest margin of victory for a 15 seed in the NCAA tournament. 44 to 30 total rebounds advantage Princeton. How about 16 to 8 offensive rebounds for Princeton? It's just not going to happen again against a Creighton team that looked like it could get out of this region with how well it played against Baylor. Also, Creighton defends the three-point line very well. That's always something if you want to take a dog of this magnitude like Princeton, you want them to be able to shoot well, get hot, 
put the pressure on the heavy favorite. I don't see that happening here for Creighton in terms of, uh, you know, the pressure amounting. I, I think maybe this game hangs on the number, but I don't see a lot of stress for the Blue Jays in advancing. So I guess if you want to throw Creighton in a money line parlay or something, go for it. But I'll pass this game. Let's wrap up back in KC where the Xavier Musketeers take on the Texas Longhorns in a juicy Sweet 16 matchup, the final one on the docket, as the Musketeers are a four-and-a-half-point dog, total of 149. And I'm going to be on the game to go over the 149. I know that unders have been profitable in March Madness, but Xavier is one of the better like faster adjusted tempo teams in the country. And I don't think Texas minds playing that kind of a game. You look at Texas scoring in the seventies against Penn state and against Kansas in the big 12 championship game. And you look at Texas getting up into the eighties against Colgate. I think that both of these teams have a level of comfort with getting up and down and playing faster. And therefore, I I, I just think that both teams are going to want to kind of do the same thing in terms of pace and speed and just look at Xavier being able to come back against Kennesaw State. Look at Xavier being able to really just pace itself early and often against Pitt and not really ever be in jeopardy of losing that game. Both of these teams, in a lot of ways, I think mirror each other in terms of a level of comfort of playing. Dylan DeSue, out of nowhere, caught fire for Texas in that Penn State game. And so I don't love a side here because I do think that Xavier is much more like the Xavier team that played against Pitt than the Xavier team that played against Kennesaw. Okay, remember, Kennesaw, that was a survive and advance win for Xavier. You're going to need those every now and again. And in a lot of ways, it's impressive that Xavier didn't wilt under pressure the way Purdue did the first weekend and lose the game to Kennesaw. The Musketeers bounced back and played very well against Pitt. Sean Miller obviously knows how to win at Xavier. He's been there before, and he's doing a great job there this year. So I expect this game to be played in the upper 70s, low 80s. I think 149 is too low of a total. I don't love a side here because I do think that the number's about right. One, two-possession game. You know, we're sitting at four and a half. It could go either way, so maybe you want to take the points with Xavier, but... At the same time, when you look at the talent level, Texas obviously has an edge here. I mean, this is a Texas team that ran through Kansas twice recently. So, I don't love a side, but I'll go over 149 to wrap things up for this Sweet 16 edition of Full Slate. That, as I said, will do it. Supposed to jump back on. Hopefully, we make all the stars align for the Elite Eight as I'll come back and we'll do the four regional finals with Alex a little bit later on. 
My name is Greg Frank. This has been another episode of Full Slate. Follow the podcast at full underscore slate underscore pod. Shoot me a follow at undercover Greg at G underscore Frank six. And give our buddy Alex a follow as well, who will be with us for the weekend at Alex underscore up seven. Everyone enjoy the Sweet 16. And of course, please play responsibly.